This is the sixth lesson in our series uh, on the New Testament book known as the Gospel According to Mark. And our focus today will be on Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1, with an emphasis on following Jesus. Uh, for this text, uh, Lifeway Publishing Editors provide this lesson statement, Jesus calls people to a faithfully follow him. Mark starts his book uh, in the first verse with in the beginning of the gospel, that would be the good news, all right? And the good news is Jesus. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that's how Mark begins uh, his writing, all right? And as we've seen in our previous lessons, uh, the book of Mark is, is, is fast-paced. It moves right along, and it is quite compact, all right? The, the only details Mark provides are those he thinks which are essential. Uh, there are parallel passages in Matthew, and the Gospel of Luke, and uh, the parallel passages of the materials we're considering today are in Matthew chapter 16 and Luke chapter 9. Now, in last week's study, uh, Jesus and his disciples were in the region of Tyre, all right, and the region of Decapolis. Decapolis. Decapolis means uh, ten cities. I don't have the cities identified, but the map inside your, your book will point out where the Decapolis is. It's this region here, southeast of the Sea of Galilee. All right, this is Decapolis. You remember when uh, Jesus went ashore there and there was uh, a, a man who was demon-possessed treated like a maniac, if you will. Uh, and, and so Jesus healed the man of the demons, cast them out. They went into the, a herd of swine. They ran off of a cliff. The people there were upset with him. Remember all of that? That happened in this region right, right here. Uh, so it was a Gentile populated uh, region with a sprinkling of, of, of Jews, of course, uh, just because of its near, nearness to Israel, all right? All right, and so, so they went all the way from Tyre up here, all the way down here, and, and, and in this concise manner, Mark just covered that in one verse last week, all right? They just traveled all the way down here to the couple, uh, in one verse. Well, that's a long way to go. I mean, I don't know how long it took them on foot to get there. Uh, in this instance, Mark didn't think it was essential for us to know that. All right. But that's just an illustration of the compactness, if you will. Remember they had bad books back then, such as camels or something? Well, they did. They did uh, have camels. Uh, if you could afford one, you know, that was a thing. <coughs> yeah, I guess if you 
were to call an Uber, a guy would come on his camel and pick you up. But I don't know, in that day and time, most of the travel was on foot. Uh, they did have some uh, burrows, if you will, to, to carry uh, cargo and, uh, and occasionally people. They did have horses, but horses were primarily uh, used by the uh, uh, military. Mm -hmm. You remember camels in Egypt? I rode on camels in Egypt. Oh, you did? Yeah. Did it hurt you? Did it bite you? It's all right as long as they got on the, instead of trotting. Yeah. Not so good trotting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've seen, I've, I've never done that. So I trust your uh, comments there, uh, Bob, on riding on a, on a camel. Well, so, so what we've got here today is what we're looking at is this in this study is following Jesus, following Jesus. Right. Well, we learned last week while he was in Decapolis, the region of Decapolis, uh, Jesus healed a deaf man who was also had difficulty in speaking. And Scott led us through that event last Sunday. Mark then tells of Jesus feeding another large crowd miraculously. Uh, and this crowd was made up of Gentiles mostly, uh, whereas the similar feeding involved uh, Jews for the most part. And we had studied about the feeding of the 5,000 uh, a couple of weeks ago. All right. And so they left, Mark tells us, they left this region of Decapolis. And by boat, they went to uh, Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha, we don't know where that was. All right? We don't know where that was, but somehow they came across, and it was probably, they, most scholars say it was near the, uh, the region of the city of, or town or village of Magnola. Magnola. Mary Magdalene came from there, but that's generally where it was. We think, but we don't know for sure uh, as to this date. All right. But that's what, it, and there they were confronted by a group of uh, religious leaders, uh, Jewish religious leaders, demanding a sign from Jesus, which would verify his authority. Uh, Jesus was having nothing to do with that. So they got back into the boat, and then they went up to Bethsaida. We talked about Bethsaida before. And, and when they got to Bethsaida, which is north here in your maps on the back of your book, all right, just to uh, just to the east of, on the coast up here of Capernaum, and when they got they got there, uh, Jesus healed another blind man, all right, and that kind of catches us up from last week's lesson to this morning's lesson, which begins chapter eight verse 27 all right and that's so that's where i want us to begin this morning i know our lifeway study guides uh start with verse 31 the verses 27 to 30 provide the prelude for that which follows so here's the outline that i wish to follow this morning uh, here on the board i hope you can you all can see it without too much glare 
But I want the I want us to follow following Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 9, 1. Acknowledges destiny, deity, verses 27 to 30. Acknowledges destiny, verses 31 to 33. Accept the cost of discipleship, verses 34 through 38. And anticipate kingdom power being displayed. That's chapter 9, verse 1. That is the outline that I wish us, for us to use this morning. It, it lines up pretty closely to what is LifeWay has in our study guides, all right? So, now in my preparation uh, for this lesson, I incorporated remarks by Gary Sieber, Sean Thomas, and David McKenna's commentary, in addition to LifeWay's materials. Now, you, I tell you this, uh, just in case I forget to give uh, those sources some credit, as we move through this morning's lesson. So let's, let's get going. Following Jesus. A follower of Jesus will acknowledge his deity. Verse 27, chapter 8. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Philippi. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Philippi. And Philippi, Caesarea Philippi is what it is. Caesarea Philippi is, if you're here in Bethsaida, all right, Caesarea Philippi is way up here. Just the northern stretches of where Israel's uh, territory would be. It's way up here, Caesarea Philippi. It was a Roman province. Uh, it was. It was. Uh, it was not close. Uh, so they had to travel quite a distance uh, to get there. Now then, and in that place, because it was a Roman province, they had many. They worshipped many pagan gods in Caesarea Philippi. All right, they were everywhere, uh, including the, uh, the pagan god of Baal. And Baal appears throughout the Old Testament, uh, as you know. Pan was another of the gods, and, and either Caesar himself was worshipped as a god in Caesarea Philippi. All right. So, it says he went with his disciples. He went with his disciples. What is a disciple? A follower. It's a follower. A disciple, and it follows a teacher. The students were called <laughs> disciples because they followed the teacher or their master, if you will, their rabbi. All right. So Jesus had followers. He had disciples. And we know about 12 of them in particular that he selected. All right. We know that 12, and, and Mark sometimes refers to them as apostles. Uh, but there were other followers that he had people that came along and supported him in his ministry we read other places in the New Testament where uh, there were women who came along uh, and, and so there were others supporters that went along with him who were disciples we're not sure in this instance how many of those were along on this road trip but uh, 
we know at least when he says Mark says disciples, we know at least the main ones, the twelve that he called, were there. Now, and so that's what we find here. Now then, I stop where twenty-seven. All right. And on the road, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" All right. Who do people say that I am? And I don't think this was just idle chit-chat going along on the journey. Jesus had a purpose for this question. Okay, Although we're only halfway through this book of Mark, all right? We're only halfway through the book. Jesus' earthly ministry is approaching the three-year point. So it's been two and three years now. And so he's been at this a long time with his disciples. All right? And so he needs his disciples to start coming around to an understanding of his true identity. They've been a, among the, the people who have heard Jesus' teaching, and they've witnessed the many miracles, or as John calls them, signs. Uh, and they've had uh, a long time with Jesus. And so, uh, the future spreading of the word, the good news of Jesus, really depends on these, these guys, these people that are following him. All right? They may not understand it at that, at that point in time, but that's the case. That's what the case was. We know now. All right? So Jesus had this simple introductory uh, question for them. Who do people say that I am? Continue with verse 28. They answered him. Oh, somebody over here said John the Baptist. Somebody else said, oh, others. Others, uh, Elijah, for instance. Uh, one of the parallel uh, passages in the other gospels, says, they said they offered Jeremiah. Well, we know, we know that he would not be Jeremiah come back to life, we don't think. All right? John the Baptist, by this point, he had already been beheaded. All right? but, but some thought he'd come back to life in, 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 in Jesus. All right? But they had all of these, and so was one of the prophets, maybe Elijah. All right? Okay. Yeah, and and that was another instance there when that was called his transfiguration, and he took uh, just three of his disciples with him, and they saw uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, and and along with Jesus. I don't know how they recognized Moses. I know they've never seen him before. But there must be something in the details there that you, or Elijah, you know, Elijah carried up in a whirlwind. All right. So we don't know that, but this is what they, they said. And so I don't think this was uh, just idle uh, chit chat. Right? And so they knew what the people were saying. And I think Jesus also knew it as well. He, he, he wasn't ignorant of that. And so. If you ask somebody today, who is, who is Jesus? 
what kind of answers would you get? Anything? Have you ever asked anybody that? Or heard somebody's thoughts on that? No. Huh? You don't know? I think what you would find is that people, if you have some people, you know, heard of him. He was a good teacher. Or a man from long ago in history, he was a good man. All right? Uh, and something along those lines. And that would be it. That would, that would probably be, be it. All right? Well, what they got now is when you came in to read the Bible and sit in school, yeah. you, you were strictly in the... In knowledge, yeah. yeah. You don't know if you're not getting it at home or in a, in a church. I don't think it should be who was Jesus. It's who is who Jesus. Who is Jesus. All right. Who is Jesus. All right. Uh, but you know what? It, the truth of the matter is, is, is this. When some will say even a shyster. All right. He was a shyster. Let people along. Uh but the truth of the matter is this, uh, what others say pales in significance to the most important question, doesn't it? That, you know, what others say doesn't matter, all right? Verse 29 says, but you, you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And, and this is kind of a foundational question for all of us, uh, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Son of God. Uh, right. Yeah, although you in this case, is a, I'm sure, as he looked around, it's plural. It applies to each one who was present, each one of us. If we were that thing. Who do you say I am? Each person has to decide, and it so it anticipates a, a, a personal response, all right? Each individual has to respond. Right. So he asked him that. Peter answered. What did he answer? You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You are the, in the CSB now, says, uh, Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Well, and that's typical of Peter, as we know in other studies, you know, speak out for the group. That was good old Peter, all right? And so he would always step forward and, and do that. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He, he, that would be his response. You are the Christ, all right? You are the Christ. Uh, that's why Matthew says it right. and and I find it interesting that the CSV is the only one I found uh, that the editors of, of, of this Christian standard Bible uh, use the Hebrew word Messiah instead of Christ as the other translations do but Messiah means anointed one in ancient times, uh, kings and priests and other special people were anointed. That is, they went, underwent a ritual uh, signifying that being set aside for a very 
important task. So when the rabbis translated the Old Testament uh, from Hebrew to Greek, they used the Greek word Christos, Christos, for the Hebrew word Messiah. All right, and so Christos, which comes across in English as Christ, which means the Anointed One. And because in, uh, in our our text, Jesus' disciples were were Jewish, using the Hebrew designated designation Messiah. Uh, underscores the disciples' opinion of who Jesus really was. Uh, in addition, the phrase Son of the Living God, uh, as recorded in Matthew, denotes Jesus as being divine. Well, even with this being said, there still remained a disconnect. In his disciples' minds, as with most Jews of the day, the Messiah was viewed as a conquering hero who would overthrow Roman rule and reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem. He would be their deliverer, both from oppression, he would be their savior. Israel would once again be the most powerful nation on earth. Verse 30 says, And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Why did he do that? Why did he warn them? Any ideas? Mm -mm. I don't know. It looked like he would want them to tell. I mean, how could you keep something? Well, he's, he's also, we've seen that as he's healed people. Please. Well, he's one each time along with his uh, disciples. Well, teachers. Was that so much as maybe trying to explain to them so they would understand? Later on, he was leaving different places because he didn't want to be taken forcibly as a king. Yes, now the, the Gospels talks about in the feeding of the 5,000. They wanted to make him king. Uh, his mission, his mission. His time had not come. His time had not come. Yeah. His time had not, his mission had not been accomplished at this point. All right? And so false expectations that would just hinder uh, of course, it would not thwart God's plan, but it would uh, would not be in accordance with God's plan. So, not reveal Himself too soon. He did not. He he, he wanted to uh, still have that time together. So, a follower of Jesus is going to acknowledge who He is, acknowledge His His true identity, acknowledge His His, his deity. <laughs> Next, to follow Jesus with knowledge his destiny, beginning with verse 31, and this is in your books. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. And, and I'm sure that this, this statement, that he, he said, this, this word probably just blew the mind of his followers, these, these disciples, all right? That's not what they expected. It just been said, you're the Messiah. Now he's telling them, whoa, wait a minute. He must suffer, all right, many, many things, all right? And so we notice that here he referred to himself as the son of, of man. And Sean Thomas points out biblically 
literate Jews knew the prophecy of Daniel 7.13, which says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and sovereignty, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Son of Man was uh, the title Jesus most often used to refer to himself. And the description of Daniel in that reference is compatible with the expectation, if you will, of the Messiah. So what was not expected was the consideration of his suffering. All right, this suffering stuff that he mentions. Apparently, the suffering servant passage of, as we've read in previous studies, in uh, from the prophet of Isaiah, they were just always just glossed over. Gary Seaver says the phrase that is translated as "suffer many things" is literally "much" or "many must suffer." The emphasis is more on the fact that Jesus, or the Messiah, is to suffer greatly than to suffer many things, although he did suffer many things. Betrayal, arrest, humiliation, injustice, beating, mockery, and so on. The message here is he must suffer greatly, enormously, all right, as the slaughtered lamb of God. So if he would suffer, he would be rejected by the prestigious Jewish leaders uh, of the day, uh, they detested him, and they would put him on trial eventually, a mock trial, and they would have him killed. But he would rise physically from that death, and Jesus proclaimed beforehand that he was going to die here. Uh, he told them, and come back alive. He did, exactly as he said. All right. Going on with verse 32, he spoke openly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to what? Rebuke him. Began to rebuke him. Simon Peter, Simon Peter, the impetuous disciple, one who always seemed to have his foot in his mouth. Uh, and I've and <laughs> I heard one first pastor say one time, uh, he put it kind of crudely, uh, the one who always seemed to have a case of diarrhea of the mouth. Uh, anyway, he took it upon himself to set Jesus straight about this. And, and, and normally, when Peter spoke up, it, it's like some of you, when you speak up, you speak up on behalf of others, all right? Probably on behalf of many of the other disciples, right? And so, but he, he spoke up. Uh, and, and essentially, he says, you know, no, no, no. This will never happen to you. This will never happen to you. Uh, suffer, reject it, die, never, never. And, and so, you know, it's really the, the height of arrogance, isn't it, that somebody would try to put down or lecture Jesus. Right? And so this rebuke uh, was in, like a reprimand, if you will. All right. This is, that never happens. 
but but we do do we do the same thing if we ever said no 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 not this way Jesus no I don't like like that uh, we have questioned his wisdom uh, have we ever uh, his actions uh, his timing uh, in in our own life situations for instance you know uh, that shouldn't have happened that way Lord or why is such and such happening now and it causes us to just we've got to trust what what he does all right or he trust that he does 833 says but turning around and looking at his disciples he rebuked Peter and said get behind me Satan you are not thinking about God's concerns uh, but human concerns as a footnote in my Bible you're not thinking about the things of God but about things or about human concerns right? the fact that Jesus turned to all the disciples indicates that he understood Peter to be speaking for behalf of the whole whole group. Get behind me, Satan. Uh, remember the temptation that Jesus experienced after his baptism and he went into wilderness and he was tested by, by Satan. All right. Satan set before him all these conditions. Uh, as Jesus was beginning his ministry, he was always trying to dissuade Jesus from his mission. And his mission did require the cross. The Messiah's death for our sins was always God's plan. Uh, and this is in Isaiah 53, you know. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the whole gospel depends upon what Jesus is telling them. So a follower of, of, of Jesus will acknowledge his deity and will acknowledge his destiny and accept the cost of fellowship or discipleship. Getting with verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All right? So this is the first mention of a crowd, by the way. Uh, the group always drew a crowd. Uh, as they move from place to place. And, and in this instance, Mark could have been referring to more disciples there, followers, who supported his ministry in addition to the, the apostles, or could be local people. And the apostles questioned it. Beg your pardon? And the apostles questioned others joining on. And oh. Jesus said what he did. Well, sometimes they did, and they wanted to send them away. All right, but there were people, local people, who did seek instruction uh, and uh, healing, perhaps. At any rate, there was a crowd nearby during this stop on the road. So when all all are gathered, Jesus sets forth the requirements for anyone who wants to be a true disciple. And his first requirement was what? You saw it there. Deny I just read. Himself. All right, deny oneself. What do you think he meant by that? Allow Jesus to be the leader instead of you being the leader. Ah, yes. All right. I think he meant no longer be self-centered. No longer having yourself on the throne of your life. Uh, 
All right, that's it. And so uh, you would dispense with all earthly, worldly pursuits. That'd be second place, not be your priority uh, at all. Following, following Jesus becomes your life commitment. Your life is no longer motivated by nor characterized by anything connected to selfish desires. All right, Jesus is on the throne of your life. Uh, in 1897, uh, Charles Shelton wrote a book. It was entitled, In His Steps. In His Steps. And, and I think I might still have a copy of, of my bookshelf at, at home. But uh, living your life in his steps evokes a question you've got to answer continually, either consciously or subconsciously. You know what that question is? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? WWJD, as you see on many stickers and pieces of jewelry and so on. What would Jesus, Jesus do? WWJD. Yes. All right. I pulled up behind the car just this week, and on the back was a sticker said, are you following Jesus this close? <laughs> <laughs> very, very, good. very good. Well, Craig Larson, who is a Chicago pastor, chief editor of Christianity Today, tells of, of this instance. He says, on the way to work, I noticed some interesting signs on the SUV in front of me. The spare tire mounted on the back had the words, Texas Longhorns and an orange steer head icon on it. The trailer hitch displayed another steer head icon and the word Texas. The license plate frame was bordered with the words Longhorns on top and the University of Texas at the bottom. But sudden, something didn't add up. The license plate frame was screwed into a Land of Lincoln license plate with a picture of old Abe on it. Now, I live in Illinois, and the SUV's license plate showed that this driver now did too. I assume the driver of the SUV had moved, but had not yet identified with his new home, and had no plans of changing loyalties. So when we move, when we often go through a slow transition of loyalties to our new home, and so it is with a, Christ, a, a Christian, when we come to Christ, the kingdom of God becomes our home, our priority, but the kingdom of this world doesn't easily go away. It's not easily become our home, all right? It doesn't easily leave our hearts, leave our hearts. The great challenge of the Christian is to overcome divided loyalties and fully identify with God's kingdom, with God's kingdom. All right. Excuse me, I have to look at my watch. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> all, all right. And so, that was his first priority then. All right. Uh, the first requirement then is to die, deny himself. What's the second? What was the second? Take cross. Right. Take up his cross. The cross, it was a, a device of cruel... Roman execution 
an instrument causing painful physical death, and Jesus knew that was his destiny, taking upon himself the penalty for our sin. And Jesus' hearers on, on, on the road that day would have been very familiar with the Roman crucifix, uh, crucifixion protocol. The condemned person would be first be scourged and then required to carry the wooden cross, cross beam of the cross uh, to this place of execution. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, uh, what does he mean? Well, I, some interpret the phrase, take up your cross to be an emphasis on putting the old self to death, if you will, connected to the first, all right? But I interpret it to represent the extent of one's loyalty uh, and one's commitment in his life to follow Jesus. In my mind, it fits the verses that follow better. So a choice is necessary. It's required to follow Jesus uh, or not or not. And that choice has consequences. Look at verse 34, continuing there. If anyone wants to follow himself after me, let him take, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. All right. The first thought, trying to, to save your life, that leads to losing it, means living as the world lives. It's the living for the acceptance and the comfort uh, that the world gives, and not taking a stance against the things of the world. Living for the world means denying Jesus. And Jesus identified that person as already perishing in John chapter 3. You will recall those scriptures, meaning that person will lose their life forever. The alternative to losing your life, and by doing so, saving it, is that. This implies denying yourself and taking up your cross. Jesus calls this being reborn in, in John chapter 3, and a person doesn't do that for no reason, but for the sake of Jesus and his message, the gospel. So this links Jesus and his message, that is the gospel, together. And doing that saves our life forever. All right. So prior to his second coming, uh, everyone dies physically. All right. Spiritual death separates you from God's presence eternally and leads you to and through the gates of hell forever, for all eternity. Verse 36. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? All right. What can anyone give in exchange for his life? This world, this world, like our lives here, is just temporary. Just temporary. It's, it's like that old illustration that we considered before. If you rent a room at Motel 6 for a week, would you spend all your time that week fixing it up? No. Would you? No. 
We're temporary here. So the decision to follow Jesus brings eternal reward, which cannot be acquired in any other way. From the standpoint of eternity, not following Jesus is just simply irrational. The pleasures of life, how many people do not want to follow Jesus just because they know they'll have to give something up? Uh, they do. Years ago, I, I read this quote from Ted Turner. Remember Ted Turner? In which he said, he liked the way he was living his life, and if that meant he was on the road to hell, so be it. <laughs> okay? Sean Thomas says he had read the testimony of an atheist who flat out said he didn't want to believe in God because he didn't want to change his life. He's basically trading his soul for those worldly pleasures he doesn't want to give up. So, a follower of Jesus is going to identify with, with, with Jesus. In verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, there is a judgment to come. There will be a day of accountability. So being ashamed of someone is not wanting to be identified with that person or associated with them because it will make you appear out of touch with the world. And so Jesus describes the world as adulterous and sinful. So this kind of takes us back to 34 again. Verse 34 as we began the lesson today. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. So, follower Jesus is going to deny, uh, or acknowledge his deity, acknowledge his destiny, and accept the cost of discipleship and anticipate kingdom power being displayed. Going on to chapter 9, Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. The kingdom of God is the, the heart of the gospel message it was already coming when Jesus spoke these words. In previous studies, we've uh, discovered when Jesus begins with the phrase, truly I tell you, or verily I say to you, he's saying you can count on the truthfulness of what I'm about to say, so listen up. In this case, he's telling these disciples, and the people in the crowd that some of them will witness, be a witness to the power of the kingdom coming at the birth of the church at a future time which we know occurred after his resurrection and his ascension during the Jewish Pentecost celebration. The Holy Spirit came down in power. So it wasn't the kingdom many of them expected, but it was what God had planned. So, Conclude. Following Jesus. Acknowledge his deity. Acknowledge his destiny. Accept the cost of discipleship and anticipate kingdom power being displayed all around you, even today. So once you've made that decision to submit your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to indwell you immediately. So don't hold back. Follow his leadership with wild abandon. All right? Any of you pilots? Have any of you been pilot training? 
a little background in that, I'm not, not a pilot. But if you were inside the cockpit of an, uh, an airliner or any airplane just before liftoff, you would hear the co-pilot or captain say, call out V1. V1 is that point of no return during takeoff. As the airplane accelerates to the end of the runway, the pilot's got to decide if the plane is moving fast enough for a safe takeoff. This speed's got to be determined beforehand, pre-flight based on factors including uh, the weather, the temperature, the weight of the plane, the speed of the wind, and so on. The pilot holds the throttle as the plane approaches the V1 speed so that the takeoff can be aborted if something goes wrong. However, after V1, the plane's got to go. It's got to take off. It doesn't, it can't stay. So we have a V1 commitment as Christians. Once we have placed our faith in Christ alone, we've reached the point of no return. We need to adjust our sights, apply full throttle, and take off and follow him with abandon. We sing that little chorus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No what? No turning back. Let's pray. My Father, we looked at your word quickly this morning. Uh, may it uh, take effect in our lives. May we attune our lives to your will, not our own, as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.